uh, you make a decision, but one of the primary things that I always rely on when I'm making a decision is reviews. Uh, whether it's a product I'm going to buy, I want to find some reviews on, uh, on Amazon. Or whether it's a business I'm going to visit, I want to find some reviews and see what people say about it. Whether, or if it's a restaurant, I want to see what are people saying about this restaurant. And so uh, I always look up reviews, or movies too, we look up um, reviews for that. And I, so I want to see what other people say about it. Because a business, of course, is going to describe themselves in glowing terms, right? It's like, here's what we want to do, this is what we're about. And, you know, of course, they're not going to say, you know what, we're kind of like half good at our fries, but the burgers are decent. You know, they're not going to say that. When we read the reviews, you're getting people's actual thoughts. What do they think about this place? And uh, they're going to tell us what it's really like. And bad reviews can be devastating. If you think about it, if you're like, I was thinking about going to this restaurant, and then I looked, and I had like 15 reviews, and five of them were bad. And then you're going to be like, eh, I don't think I'm going to visit that. Or a product where you're looking on Amazon, you're like, oh, this is what I was looking for. I, I searched for it, and then you look at the reviews, and it's like, ah, oh, broke, or, or it didn't quite do what I wanted. So bad reviews can be very devastating. And good reviews are so influential that people will actually pay for fake good reviews. And so if you didn't know this, this is kind of a, a public service announcement, that when you're on Amazon... Uh, actually, a bunch of those views can actually be fake. Something might have four and a half stars, and we have this little extension on our web browser that it, uh, what's it called, fake spot or something, and it, you hit it, and then it scans through those reviews and uses like an algorithm to figure out, okay, this percentage of them was our true reviews. These are just fake. People just put those on there. Maybe the company did it or, you know, however it happened. And so if you're on Amazon and it has four and a half stars, it might not really have four and a half stars, but that just shows how uh, coveted um, good reviews are that they can make or break a product or a business. And of all times in history, I'm going to, you know, this is speculation, but uh, of all times in history, I think this might be the one in which you can most instantly know your status with people. So a business online, it's kind of like, you know, word could spread about what, that they have, you know, bad chicken or whatever by word of mouth, or you can just you know, in, in previous, in the past, that's how it spread. But now you can just go online and see, oh, what kind of business is this? Or online, we post, have a social media post. And you can instantly know, did people like this? You know, or is it kind of a, you know, emojis or whatever they put on a, a post. And you can just know immediately, even in text now, whether, how people are responding to what you said. You can know their, your status with them. Do they like this? Do they heart it? Do they, you know, whatever. Uh, so we have reviews, Google, Amazon. You can rate your doctor. There's a health, I think the site is like healthgrade.com. Or you can rate your professor. Uh, you can give one to five stars and things. You can fill out a survey to tell uh, the business how, you, how they did. You have like buttons, thumbs up or thumbs down. And we might look at a place and be like, this has great reviews. Or this movie has great <coughs> reviews. And you can just instantly know what's your status with people. You post it out there in social media or businesses, and you can just instantly know where people stand. And everyone wants to be popular and liked. We want to be noticed for the right reasons. We want to be accepted. We want to get good reviews, whether it's a business getting good reviews or people getting good reviews. We want to be liked. We want people to you know, give us a five-star rating on our neighborliness or our friendliness or our, um, co- uh, our job, how we do our job. And the truth is we care about what other people think of us. And businesses do and we do as people. And this series uh, is just called one word, different. And it's almost like Peter's writing this how-to manual to a group of people living in like the, um, this around 60s, the 60s of the first century. Uh, they're living and they're experiencing this pressure 
and its hostility and harassment because of their faith. At this point, the government hasn't taken a stance on uh, you know, them saying, you can't be a Christian. The government hasn't taken a stance at this point. They do later. Um, at this point, this is just people they know. They've come to faith. They've come out of their uh, their old lifestyle of however they're living, the gods they believed in, and now they're living this new lifestyle. They're believing in different gods. They're with a different community. They left the pagan temples, and now they're with this church community. And so they're experiencing rejection and ridicule. They're under pressure to fit in. And so... How do you remain different as a Christ follower when there's a cost to doing so? And I've said this, I think, every message in First Peter, that uh, we've lost home field advantage. We're the visiting away team. And so how do you wear your Team Jer- Jesus jersey in a world that's cheering against Team Jesus, a world that doesn't like the person that you're wearing a jersey of? And the message, we're going to kind of, uh, this today wraps up kind of the first part of First Peter, of what he's getting at. And then uh, verse, uh, in chapter 2, verse 11, he starts a different kind of part. Um, so the message that he's given so far, you can think of it as a grace sandwich. Um, and so uh, verses chapter 1, verses 3 through 12, that was all about, uh, hey, you individuals, this is the grace that God has brought to you. And then, and what was that? We saw, by God's great mercies, caused us to be born again into a living hope, an inheritance, a salvation, and Peter says, praise God, you have this great future to look forward to. Even though now you're grieved by various trials, people don't like you, but wait for the day when your faith is going to give you honor and praise and glory in God's sight, maybe not in the sight of the world right now. And he says the prophets and angels wanted to see this day that you live in. And so that's grace. He's talking to these people. Hey, each of you has been given this new uh, future to look forward to. And then verses 13 through 21, he gives three commands flowing out of that. Hey, there's this grace you've been given as individuals. Here are these three commands as individuals. And he's, there's really three commands for individuals to be God-centered. He said, set your hope fully on that grace. Be holy uh, as the one who called you is holy. God has called you into this grace. And so now you be holy as he's holy. And live for his approval. That Don't worry about other, what other people think. You're calling on him as father. So live for his approval. So those are three commands for individuals. Then last week we saw two commands for the community to be God-centered. That's in chapter 1, verses 22 through 23. And he basically says, love one another, long for more of the word, long for more of the gospel, the good news of what God has done through Jesus Christ. And now lastly today, this is where the other half of bread for the grace sandwich comes in. Because the first, uh, chapter 1, verses 3 through 12, was like grace for individuals. And now... Uh, chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, is grace for the community. What has God done for this community? What has his grace turned you into? What does that uh, mean for you? And what we're reading about, you could say it's all about status, or you could say it's all about identity. And I think those two things can kind of get um, meshed together. Like, what's my status with people? What do they think of me? And also, uh, who do I think I am? What's my identity? And so we're going to look, <clears throat> start in verses 4 through 5. <clears throat> And basically these verses are setting up Jesus' status in God's sight and our status in God's sight. Chapter 2, verses 4 through 5. Jesus' status in God's sight and our status in God's sight. And in verse 4 he says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. And so he starts off, the hymn he's referring to is the Lord in the previous verse, verse 3, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good, then as you come to him, as you come to the Lord, as you 
put your faith in Him, as you surrender to Him, as you trust in Him, as you uh, give Him your obedience in your heart, as you come to Him, and then He describes who are they coming to? As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. And so Jesus, He's saying, had these two statuses, two different statuses. He had His status with the world, and He had His status with God. He said you were, He was rejected by men, but chosen and precious in the sight of God. So rejected by men, chosen and precious in the sight of God. Jesus' two statuses, one with the world and one with God. And the religious leaders despised and rejected Jesus by crucifying him. And God, but God then made him the cornerstone by raising him from the dead. And we'll get to that cornerstone language later. And so there's what the world thinks of Jesus, and there's what God thinks of Jesus. Jesus' status with the world, Jesus' status with God. But then he applies it to his readers, Verse 5, as you come to him, you yourselves are, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so they are coming to him. As they're coming to him, the stone that was rejected by men but chosen precious in the sight of God, they too are being built up. They're like stone, living stones being built up into this spiritual house. And spiritual house, that phrase takes us back to the Old Testament where God had a temple where his presence dwelled. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. God created Adam and Eve and his presence among them. We're told that he came and walked in the garden with them. That was like the first temple. God created this the world to be his temple where he dwelled with people. But then because of their sin, they didn't want God to be in charge. They had to leave that temple. And so God sent them out of the Garden of Eden. But eventually God calls the people of Israel and says, okay, I'm going to dwell among you in this in a tabernacle, which is really like a tent. It was like a mobile temple. And so God says, I'm going to dwell among you. I'm going to be present with you in this tabernacle. And then eventually, as the nation got established, they left Egypt, and they're walking around, and so they need this temple that can move, a tent. And eventually, they get established in the land of Israel, and they set up a building, a temple that's going to be permanent there. And then God came and filled it with his glory, so much so that all the priests ministering, and it had to, had to leave because his presence was so powerful in it. And so that's the story of the temple. But then now in the New Testament, God says, it's no longer a building. It's no longer really a a place on earth. But the dwelling place of God is by the Spirit in his people. And so he says, you are each a stone of this new temple. It's still a physical place where God's presence dwells. But it's in the people now instead of a building. And so this place isn't the temple uh, no place here is the temp- no other church building in this town is the temple. The church is the temple of God. That we, when we are together as a people, we are the temple of God, God's spiritual house. And he says we're, they're built into a spiritual house, but for what purpose? He says to be a holy priesthood at the end of verse 5. To be a holy priesthood. And God's people... Um, as we saw, Sharon read Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 through 6. God says to the people of Israel, you are going to be my kingdom of priests. And here we're told, okay, now these people are this holy priesthood. And by the way, these, the people reading this letter are not Jewish. They're not Israelites. These are, uh, this is a Gentile, non-Jewish audience he's writing to. But now he's taking those words that are applied to the nation of Israel from the Old Testament. He's applying it uh, to these people who are not Israelites. And he tells them, you know, God, all of you are the priesthood. Everyone who believes is a priest. And in the Old Testament, in the nation of Israel, it was a family line that were the priests. It was 
went from Aaron to the Levites, and those people were the priests, one family line among the people of God. But now he's saying, all of you, all the people of God are priests, and they have, which means they have this access to God, and he says it's through Jesus Christ. The priests um, were people that, um, they're at the temple, they're in the presence of God, and if somebody wanted to come interact with God there, they had to come through the priests, and the priests would do the sacrifices, and so they're like this mediator, they're this go-between that connected the people to God and God to the people. But now he says all of you are priests, all of you are the connecting points from people that don't know God um, to the God that you serve. And he says they, they built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood and also to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And in the old temple, in the old priesthood, they offered animal sacrifices. They're sacrificing animals so that people can be cleansed of their sin or so they can express thanksgiving to God. But now this is a new kind of temple. It's a new kind of priesthood. And so there's new, a new kind of sacrifices being made. And so it's not the animal sacrifices. And you can see Peter, you could really say um, in this letter, everything he's saying that they ought to do uh, in their response to God and toward other people, those are their spiritual sacrifices that they're offering. And you could a good summary could be Colossians 3.17. Uh, he, the Apostle Paul writes, Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And so our sacrifices now are doing things in the name, everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And 1 Corinthians 11.31 says, So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. But perhaps Peter has in mind what he's going to say later in verse 9, where he says, uh, you've, been, you've been made into this people, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so... Our spiritual sacrifices, we're priests that are connected to God, we're the spiritual house, this temple of God's presence, and the sacrifices we offer are proclaiming the excellencies of the one who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so this, to sum up what he's saying here, there's this dual status situation with Jesus. Uh, he was a living stone rejected by men, but chosen and precious in God's sight. But then he's saying, you too, you are living stones. You're being rejected by the world, but you are chosen and precious in God's sight. Jesus was the first chosen and precious living stone, and they too are the chosen and precious living stones. And so now let's try to put ourselves in their situation. Uh, if you're experiencing hostility and harassment because of what you believe, it came to you as good news and you said, yes, I want to I follow that. I want to give my life to that. And then all of a sudden you're being put to shame. You're being rejected, reviled, and ridiculed. It would be easy to wonder, well, did we get this wrong? Were we kind of you know, duped? Did this message, is it really true? This is the good news that Jesus is king of the world, and his kingdom is coming to earth. And then they're saying, yes, I want to be part of that kingdom. I want to I join that. I want to join forces with him. And then it's like, well, did we get this wrong? People are you know, rejecting us, ridiculing us. Is God mad at us? Do we disobey and now we're being punished? Has God rejected us? It seems like things aren't going well for us. Is this really worth it? Like, we said yes to this, but is this really worth it, what we're going through? And Peter reminds them of Jesus. We know, he's, you know, he's telling them, we know that Jesus was rejected by men, but chosen and precious in God's sight. And that is what's true of you too. Jesus' life is the pattern of ours. And it would be easy for us to be like, this kind of seems like a glitch. If we're on team Jesus, 
and Jesus is the king of God's kingdom, then why are things going so poorly for us? Uh, it seems like a little glitch in the plan, God, that shouldn't things be going better for us now? If we're on God's side, why is this happening? And perhaps you've asked that too. Maybe you've had things happen in your life. You've had people who have heard about your faith in Jesus, or you've tried to talk to them, and they just totally were against you from that point forward. And you're like, that doesn't seem to be how it should go. Like, if this is good news, shouldn't people hear it as good news and thank me? And it doesn't go that way sometimes. And in verses 6 through 8, Peter quotes from the Old Testament to show that God set it up this way. God knew that this was going to happen, how it was going to go down. And so verses 6 through 8, he quotes these scriptures to prove it. So verse 6 starts with a 4. So every time you see a 4, I like to think that it's answering the question, why? And so he's saying, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Why? For it stands in scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This is a reference to Isaiah prophet of the Old Testament, lived 700 years before Jesus, uh, Isaiah 28, 16. And, and the stone in that passage refers to the Messiah, uh, the person that God said, I'm going to raise up this person, I'm going to have my chosen king come and he's going to liberate you from all that oppresses you, talking to the nation of Israel. And in that passage, <clears throat> the point that's being made is don't trust in foreign alliances or in military strength. Uh, but trust in God through the Messiah. Judgment will come to those who don't trust in him, but those who do trust in him will triumph. And now Peter's saying Jesus is that cornerstone that Isaiah was talking about, that God's bringing his king to come. Don't trust in other things. Don't put your trust in military or whatever it is and other kings, but put your trust in him, and you will not be put to shame in the end. You will triumph. And Jesus is the cornerstone of the whole spiritual house that God is building. And the cornerstone is like, you know, we are masons using stones. It'd be like the, the stone at the corner. Now that now you can line up everything with that. We know this stone is good, and so line up everything with that stone to get the house to be built how it should be. But then he so then he says in verse seven what he concludes from this passage is so the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So, said, so the honor is for you who believe. He's saying God has set up Jesus. He's the cornerstone of this whole thing that he's doing, all his plans and all his purposes, all his promises. You being the temple, you being this priesthood, you offering these spiritual sacrifices. Jesus is the cornerstone of that. It's all built around him. And so he's saying if you believe in him, you're, it's going to result in honor uh, in God's sight. And we saw that in verse 1-7 where he... Uh, Peter was saying, like, you're, you're being uh, grieved by various trials now, but in the end your faith will result in praise and honor and glory. When Jesus comes back, he's going to say to you, you know, welcome, and he's going to praise us and honor us for our faith in him. But then he contrasts it, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And this is one of the favorite passages uh, of the New Testament that Jesus talked about it and some of those his close followers, the apostles, talked about it. Looking back at um, this psalm, Psalm 118.22, that he's quoting, in that passage, the Messiah, or the Christ, was rejected by foreign nations. They rejected his rule, but then in the end, the one who was rejected became the cornerstone. Like All these people rejected him, but in the end, he became the cornerstone of what God is doing. And Jesus and Peter 
uh, interestingly, didn't apply this passage to foreign nations, saying, the Messiah is going to be rejected by foreign nations, but he's going to be the cornerstone. What they actually apply it to, Jesus applied it to the religious leaders of Israel, saying, guess what, I'm going to be the cornerstone. You're rejecting me, but I'm going to be the cornerstone of all that God is doing. And Israel's leaders were so far from God that they had become like the pagan nations. And in rejecting Jesus, he's saying, you know, they've signed their own death warrant. They've decided their own fate. Because he says in verse 8, the stone was a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And so people, uh, the Apostle Paul says, 1 Corinthians 1, he says that Jesus was, uh, Christ crucified, Jesus Christ crucified, is a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. In other words, when you say, the Christ, this was the king from the Old Testament that all the people were waiting for, and now he's been crucified by the Romans? This doesn't make sense. To a Jew, it's, you would be saying, the Messiah was supposed to come and boot out the Romans. He was supposed to put God's kingdom on earth once again, give us the land of Israel back. So Christ crucified, that doesn't make sense. The Christ crucified as a rebel against Rome, he was supposed to defeat Rome. That's a stumbling block. And to Greeks, they, it's like, what are you talking about? We're going to... Um, you want us to put our faith in a king that died, a dead king? This doesn't make sense. It's foolishness. And here, when he quotes verse 8, this is uh, from Isaiah 8.14, where Israel, the nation, is being exhorted to fear and trust in the Lord rather than other nations. So, but then Peter goes on. He says in the second part of verse 8, they stumble because they disobey the word as they are destined to do. So people disobey the good news. They stumble over Christ because they refuse to believe in him, love him, and obey him. They refuse to surrender. They stumble because they refuse to submit to God's kingship coming to the world through Jesus. And he says they stumble because they disobey the word as they're destined to do. And so Peter, that's an encouragement to these people who are sitting there thinking, why aren't people joining us in this? this? We heard this as the best news we could ever hear and when we tell it to some people, they're saying no, and they're treating us poorly. And so what's going on here? Well, Peter says, well, they are destined to do that. They're destined to reject the good news. That was what was going to happen. And maybe you feel, when you read that, you're like, why would God make someone's destiny to reject Jesus? Why would God choose to have some people reject Jesus? Why wouldn't he want everyone to put their faith in Jesus? And the Bible holds two truths together simultaneously. Uh, the first is God's divine sovereignty or his divine control and human responsibility. And neither of them take away from the other. God is always sovereign and in control, and humans are always responsible for what they do. And the Bible it sometimes gets close to answering how exactly that works out, um, but doesn't really fully answer it. We're just told it's all over the place. Um, you see it in Joseph's story in Genesis chapter 50 where he says, you brothers who you know, sold me into human trafficking, uh, who thought I was dead, wanted to get rid of me, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. And so there's these dual purposes that can work in all of our actions. Like what we do for bad or evil, God can use for good. And so you know, what he's saying is they freely chose what they desired to do. They freely chose to reject Jesus. And our desires are what direct our decisions. And if you wonder, how can God lead us to choose him without 
us being robots. How are we not robots, you know? Like, if they're destined to do that, well, I guess they're just kind of robots doing whatever God destined them to do. And if we chose Jesus, uh, like God causes us to be born again, then how are we not robots? Why isn't, do we have any human free will? And our desires direct our decisions. And God changes us at the level of our desires so that we freely choose to trust in him, to surrender to him. And so, you know, there's like our decisions, these are our desires. And so we're making true decisions freely, free will. God changes at the level of our desires so that we freely choose him we, out of our own will. And God uses our choices for his own purposes. There's no, some people have said, there are no rogue molecules in the universe. There's nothing that God is not in control of. But then we are also responsible for our actions. God is writing a story. And how God sees us hinges on how we see Jesus. That's what he's saying here. And so do we believe uh, that Jesus is God's chosen and precious cornerstone? Or do we stumble and disbelieve and see him as an offense? We can either be coming to him as God's chosen and precious cornerstone, so that we too are become God's chosen and precious stones, or we can be rejecting him, not coming to him. And God, what God thinks of us hinges on what we think of Jesus. In verses 9 and 10, where he finishes off, these are two of my favorite verses in, in the Bible. And he, in these verses, he sets up uh, a further contrast between those who trust in Jesus and those who do not trust in Jesus. And so he said in verse 8, they stumble because they disobey the word as they are destined to do. And here's the contrast. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And these, this is really, like every word here is a little um, allusion to the Old Testament. There are words that are used in the Old Testament to describe the nation of Israel. But now they're being applied to the church. And so uh, the privileges and the responsibilities of Israel are now being fulfilled in the church of Jesus Christ. He calls them a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And in Exodus 19 that Sharon read for us, a bunch of these words turned up, that a people for his own possession, the equivalent there was, you'll be my treasured possession among all the peoples of the world. Like, I didn't choose anyone else, I chose you to be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation, my, uh, my treasured possession. And if you just you know, think about that, what if you wonder, like when we gather here today, uh, what does God think of us? And he looks down on us, and he sees these. He sees, this is what he sees: his chosen race, his royal priesthood, his holy nation, a people for his own possession. That when God looks at the church, I mean, Jesus, uh, Ephesians five talks about how the the church is the bride of Christ. So when Jesus looks at it, what he sees is his bride that he's uh, dressing in white over time. Is that he's given us this white dress, and he's slowly. Uh, also purifying of us all our sins. And so Jesus looks at us as his bride, and God looks at us as his chosen and precious people. And then we might ask, okay, well, what's the purpose? There's been a couple purpose statements in here of what uh, God wants us to do um, as a result of this. He says uh, in the second part, that last part of verse 9, he says, uh, why are you who you are? Why has God made you into his chosen and precious people? that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so the church 
has the, the privileges of Israel, being chosen by God, his treasured possession, but also the responsibilities of Israel that we are to proclaim his excellencies to those who have not heard. And I, I've always really liked this verse because um, this could be, you could be talking both worship or you could be talking evangelism or mission. And so it's like, okay, when we come together and sing, in one way we're proclaiming the excellencies of the one who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. But also the proclaim word isn't really like a, you know, like a singing word. It's more of a, like a, a preaching word, a heralding word. And so he's also saying you've become God's people that you may tell people about the one who's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And why it can be both worship and evangelism, or you could say evangelism, telling people the good news about Jesus, is worship. Because as we're doing it, it's not just like, okay, here's this thing that I want to like close a sale. It's actually when I'm talking to someone, I'm saying, I'm proclaiming the excellencies of the one who called me out of darkness. I'm telling you, this is what God has done for me. This is who I believe in. This is who Jesus is. And you're telling people he's full of grace, he's mercy, he's loving, uh, he forgives us. And you're saying, he is, he is so good. And so we're proclaiming his excellencies uh, while we're telling people about him. We're telling people, this is what my God is like. Um, and we're inviting people. He's called me out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so that's why evangelism, telling people about Jesus, is worship because you're telling people uh, about your God, the God that you're worshiping. And then 2.10 contrasts the believer's former status with their current status. Verse 10, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. <clears throat> In other words, you could just say, like you said in verse 9, they were living in darkness. They were not a people. They were not God's people. They had not received God's mercy. They had, uh, and this shows us the stark reality of anyone who has rejected Christ and for those who live without Christ. And when we think of people in our lives, it's not good enough for us to just be like, oh, they're such good people. Like, they're good people, and they talk about God in kind of a vague way, and sometimes they tend uh, you know, church on Sunday. No, that's not what saves us. Anybody who is not trusted in Jesus who, to call to come out of darkness into His light is not a people. They have not received mercy. Ephesians two gives us all these words. Uh, people who are apart from Christ, who have not come to Him, are dead in their sins and trespasses. They're following the course of this world. They're following Satan. They're sons of disobedience. They're carrying out their sinful desires. By nature, they're children of wrath. They're separated from Christ alienated from the people of God, strangers to God's covenant of, of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. There are not uh, bad people and good people. Those aren't our two categories. There are people who are with Christ, people who are without Christ, people who have surrendered to Jesus, people who have rejected Jesus. Those are the two categories. And there's no like, well, you know, some good people, how, I can't imagine God ever rejecting them. If they've rejected Jesus, then God does reject them. Those are the two categories people can fall into. And so our status before God, now and forever, depends on our response to Jesus Christ. Will we come to him as God's chosen and honored king, as the cornerstone of God's people people and promises and plan, or will we reject him and continue in disobedience and disbelief? And so this passage is all about status. Jesus had these dual statuses, rejected by men, chosen and precious in God's sight. And Peter's saying, you too, you may have two statuses. These readers of this letter, they had two statuses. They're being rejected by the people they live around, 
but they're also chosen and precious in God's sight. Last week I talked about and this idea of expressive individualism that is kind of the message of our culture, that every individual, it's our right and need to express what we feel on the inside and, and for other people to validate that. And so one way to get your status, your identity, is um, what you do, I've talked about this before, what you do plus what others think of you equals your status or who you are. But perhaps expressive individualism would add uh, it's what you feel inside plus what you do plus what others think of you equals your status or your identity. And you, we kind of, uh, the message of the culture is look in, find out who you are, and now you need to work as hard as you can to express that outwardly in your actions, in, the, in how you live in society. And anybody who is trying to stop you from expressing that is oppressive and hateful and bigoted. That's the message of our culture. And so you look inside and define who you are. Then you look around to see, are people affirming that? And if they're not, then we get mad at them. Um, or you find a group of people that were, uh, that will affirm that. And then lastly, you look up. So you look inside, you look around, and then you look up. So then people will, we design, we, this is what everyone tends to do. This isn't just people who are, aren't believers. This is for us too. We tend to design God in our own image. And so God becomes, um, have you ever heard people say, I can't believe in a God who does blank. It's like, well, does who God is, the reality of him, start with what I can believe in? Or should it be more like, I want to find out who God really is, and then I'm going to adjust my beliefs rather than, I can't believe in a God who would do that. It's like, we should find out who God really is, and then we should believe in that God. And so, if you look in, and then look around and look up, it's like, I've found a God, a version of God that can say, yeah, I love you, you know, just the way you are, I I love this about you, or I don't see that as wrong, or whatever it is. It's a God who affirms what we're wanting them to affirm because we're saying, this is what's true of me, and so the God I believe in has to affirm that. But the other way to do it is, instead of looking in, looking around, looking up, you uh, first look up to find out who is God and what does he say of me, and then you look around into the community uh, that he's brought us in. He's talking to a people here, not individuals in this passage. He's saying, you, you are cho- God's chosen race. You're God's holy priesthood. You're the spiritual house being built up. You are God's people, a people for his home possession. So we look up, this is what God says of us. And then we look around like, yes, this is who I'm a part of. I'm a living stone with these people. I'm one of God's children. I'm a follower of Jesus. This is, I'm a part of this group of people. And then we look in and see, is what's in there matching up with what God says, what my community says? And these three things um, I took from a a guy named Trevin Wax, who uh, wrote a book talking about how we should rethink ourself, uh, where it comes from. And so our status and identity is what God has done plus what God thinks of us equals our identity and status. And all this, what he's saying so far in this letter is, here's what God has done, here's what God thinks of you, and so, you know, bank on that. Don't be worried about whether the people around you are giving you status, whether they're rejecting you or ridiculing you or thinking lowly of you. And uh, it can be easy for us to think our status in the world is an indication of our status before God. Like, if things are going well for me at work or at home or in my health or in my, you know, wherever it is, if things are going well for me, that must mean God's pleased with me. He's pleased with how I'm living and Peter's saying, your status in the world is not an indication of your status with God. In fact, look at Jesus. He was rejected by men. That's his status in the world. But he was chosen and precious in God's sight. And he's saying to them, look, you're being rejected, ridiculed, 
That's not an indication of your status before God. Your status before God is this. But usually we get it backwards. If things aren't going well for us in the world, we think it probably means we're not doing something right with God. We don't have enough faith or whatever it might be. But just look at all the famous characters in the Bible. Joseph, Job, David, Jesus. And these people that Peter's writing to, that it's going difficult for them in the world, but it doesn't indicate their status before God. And Peter's point here, and Jesus' point is, most of the time, you can have one or the other. Status with God or status with the world. You've got to choose. The more we're committed to God, the less status we'll have in the world. Uh, the less committed to God we are, the more status we'll have in the world. So usually our status with God and our status with the world are opposites. Rejected by the world, chosen and precious by, to God. Dishonored by the world, honored by God. Strangers in the world, people of God. Pushed out by the world, pulled in by God. Don't belong in the world, belong to God. And then there's the opposite reality for all those, for those who do not believe, that they might be in with the world, but they're out with God. So it would be honored by the world, dishonored by God. Uh, At home in the world, strangers to God, and so forth. And there's this reversal that will happen. And Jesus talked about this all the time. If you look at the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those, blessed are you when people persecute you and revile you and utter all kinds of things against you in my name. Because yours is the kingdom of heaven. One day it will all be reversed. Those who are dishonored by the world will be honored by God. Those who are dishonoring God now will not be honored by God. So we need to ask ourselves, to whom are we looking for our sense of status and identity? To whom do you look for your sense of status? And you can think of it uh, as, whose opinion of me am I worried about? Whose opinion of me am I trying to manage? Or um, what image am I trying to craft that isn't really me? Whose opinion matters most to us? And really, as we think about talking to people about Jesus, uh, he's saying here, this is who you are, and this is why you are who you are. You're God's chosen and precious people. Why? so that you may proclaim his excellencies, the excellencies of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we need to know what God thinks of us. And that's the foundation for letting others know what we think about God, proclaiming what God thinks of us, who we are. That's all these things he said. And now we'll tell people uh, what we think of God, proclaiming, proclaiming his excellencies. And so Jesus' status before God becomes our status before God. Who Jesus is in God's sight becomes who we are, who we are in God's sight. God sees us as he sees Jesus. And when we get our status from God, we can actually talk to people and not worry about what they think of us or what they're going to do or or what their opinion of us is going to be. But if we care more about what others think of us than what God thinks of us, we will not talk about God with them. If we care about what God thinks of us more than what others think of us, we will talk about God with them because we just want to talk about him. We want to tell people how great he is. And so we've said, I've said this before, but we, our goal ought to be, I just want to be the real me and with people who don't know Jesus. And so often we put a filter on because, well, these people don't care about this or they'll be offended by this. And I'm not saying that every conversation you have with people would be, hey, I need to talk to you about God today, and you just are always kind of like pushing that, like you don't care about them, you don't want to listen to them, don't want to get to know them. But being the real you is just taking the filter off. Don't filter God or Jesus out of what you say. And honestly, this is really hard for me to do. I've been trying to do this with people 
um, that if our neighbors and people at Starbucks, and I've had this goal for a while to um, ask some of the folks there, like, hey, how can I be praying for you? And I'm like still trying to work up the courage to ask them that. And um, this past week I was talking to one of the baristas, and I came home and I told Katie that I was excited because I, did, I was talking about migraines, and she gets migraines too. And so then I was telling her that, um, I don't know, I said, I don't know if you're spiritual or not, but in the Bible, um, there's a guy in there who talks about having this thorn in his flesh, and he prays to God, you know, was that a physical thing, an emotional thing? I don't know, but he prays to God three times, asking to be taken away, and then God's answer to him is, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul, uh, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And so I was telling her, I do, I do all these things to try and get rid of them, and but then sometimes I'm like, well, maybe this is what God has given me so that in my weakness, in my limitations, I would know his grace. And, you know, she wasn't, she just kind of moved on, didn't talk about it, but, and it's like, okay, but I was myself, right? That's me. That's, we're talking about migraines, and we're talking about all, you know, using essential oils and pills and, you know, whatever the doctor gives us. But part of that, my story with migraines is, what if this is a limitation of weakness God has given me so I rely on him more? And so if I said all those things about the doctors and the pills and the essential oils and left that out, I'm not being the real me. And so I think Peter is just saying, you've been made God's people. Now just be the real you. Talk about how great and excellent he is to people and just let it come up in normal conversation as you talk. Be the real you because you know what God thinks of you. And something I've been trying to think about lately is that often we are afraid to lose something that's temporary. And we're afraid to lose, okay, you know, if this person is kind of like, well, that was kind of weird, you know, or I hope he doesn't bring that up again, or I don't really want to talk to him again. That's so temporary. It's temporary. It could be temporary for a week, a month, a year, or our whole life, but it's still temporary. But what we've gained from God is something eternal. We've been given this status that cannot be taken away from us, and we rely too much on our worldly status, this thing that's so temporary and superficial, and we're often afraid to tell someone, um, hey, uh, if you trust in Jesus, you can be given a new life. You can be forgiven. Uh, you can have something eternal, but we're afraid of losing something temporary with them. I don't want them to think I'm weird. But what are they losing? They're losing something eternally, that what they could gain is eternity with God. And we're afraid of losing their temporary you know, comfort, or making them uncomfortable or us being uncomfortable. It's, that's so temporary, but what they're losing is everything, that they're not going to have anything if they don't trust in Jesus. So, who are we and why are we here? We are God's chosen and precious people, so that we may proclaim His excellencies, the excellencies of the one who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. Let's pray. Father, we are, um, we so often can rely on other things for our status our identity, our sense of who we are. And we just hear this good news here that everything could be going wrong for us in this world with our status and what others think of us, but we do not lose our status with you or the identity you've given us that you've called us your own people, your treasured possession. So Lord, would you let us walk out of here resting in that, uh, rejoicing together in that, and you allow us to talk about you to other people just tell them how great you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.